Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, today is a special one. Uh, today is a, the day where I interviewed uh, one of my closest brothers and one of my roommates, Christian Pitty. Uh, he works with me, uh, with Aubrey for Fit for Service and all the motherfucking things. And he is one of the people in my life who I've had the pleasure of being close enough with to see what his dharma is and also the ways that he hides from his dharma and he is a badass enough to answer the call. And a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about like his future and I just had the intuition, dog, it's time for you to come on the podcast. He was nervous, but because he's a fucking warrior, he said yes. And uh, it ended up being one of the most fire fucking podcasts we have ever done. And I knew it would be. I knew it would be. So if you want to hear the story of how someone goes from being deep in the matrix to finding themselves doing something like what I do, being a part of what we're a part of, this is absolutely a podcast to check out. And also, if you want to know what um, brotherhood feels like, uh, it, I think that you'll be able to feel it between how the two of us talk to each other and about our lives and that this is a type of connection that I think specifically for men, but all people yearn for, but men in our culture have, we, we have wounds around being close and being intimate with other men. And we haven't had many examples of what it looked like because most of us either lived with dads who were not present or dads who may have been present, but didn't know how to uh, connect. And I think that um, there's some healing there on that dimension if you can look for it and feel into it. As always, if you want to support this podcast, uh, go to my website and get on my newsletter, ericgazzi.com, every Friday, hopefully on Friday, sometimes it's a little bit late. Uh, I share a newsletter of whatever's going on. Um, and you can also check out my two journaling courses that are on the website. Uh, the first one is called Make Your Myth, and it's for people who want to start a journaling practice. It's dope. And then the second one is called um, the Dharma Journal. And it's a little bit more advanced, um, but I basically put you through a week of guided meditations to help you create an inner castle that you can use to connect to at any point to really feel into what's the just right thing for you to do today. And it's how I navigate my life. As always, Thank you so much for giving your time and attention to this podcast. Uh, we live in pandemonium and there's a lot of things screaming for your attention. And it means a lot that you choose to come here. I love y'all. You're going to fucking enjoy this. Namaste. Christian Pity, welcome to the motherfucking podcast. Thank you for having me, Eric. Uh, for people who don't know, you are one of my two roommates. My other roommate, motherfucking Graham Dern, is in the room too. He is the producer and the eternal vibe keeper of everything that we do. And uh, you and I have, I've been wanting to do a podcast with you for a minute uh, because you are one of the people that has interesting things to say because you do a bunch of research and uh, you tend to not share it until it starts to be asked or a contentious conversation starts to happen and then you've got uh, dope shit to bring up. And I remember the reason why we even 
began to have this or create the idea of having the podcast was you're at a point in your life where it really feels like you're beginning to claim uh, what your dharma is and that uh, I could feel that one of the pressures for you to show up to uh, claiming that is inviting you to come on the podcast. And I was telling Graham earlier today that out of everyone that I know, um, you know, if the metaphorical bases are loaded and we need to put someone up to bat, I'm picking you, man. Uh, because <clears throat> I've done plant medicine with you. I've seen you do uh, 5-MeO, which is a very hard plant medicine to do. And uh, I've seen you accidentally take way too much ketamine, which is also a very hard thing to navigate. And every time any of those high pressure situations have manifested, a stoic, zen, almost like master Roshi type thing, like comes through you. And I was talking about this with Graham earlier, but for most of my life, I didn't think that I was uh, capable. And because I didn't think I was capable, I wouldn't put myself in situations where I would have to be. And then life in her infinite wisdom and humor would orchestrate situations for me where if I didn't step up and become capable, the people that I care about would suffer. And over the course of like five years, I had probably about five different instances where I was put into those type of situations. And I, I got to see something in me come forward that the little ego boy who didn't think he was capable would be able to begin to learn and be like, oh, wow, maybe I'm allowed to believe that I am capable because I am actually capable. And this feels like this is one of those opportunities where... Um, one of the things that I was feeling into earlier, we just finished a fifth service summit that the people who seem to have the most uh, resistance to being on the microphone or being on the stage are the people who are meant to be in front of the microphone or be on the stage. And that the people who um, hungrily clamor to it, uh, they have different wisdom that they need to learn. And you remind me of those first types of people. So no pressure, but I, we're bringing you to the motherfucking mic today. I appreciate that. And I think that I just want to give you some praise and honor for always being that brother who see the, sees these things happening internally with your psychologist mind and calling it out to the forefront. and kind of being the catalyst for me to step into these uncomfortable situations that inevitably lead to growth. So thank you. Yeah, man. And I appreciate, I, I appreciate you saying yes, because the beautiful thing about being amongst the group of friends that I have now is um, it is my natural inclination to like see those type of things and want to call those type of things forward in a loving way. And uh, the people, God bless them, that didn't really choose to be my friends. We just had the same coping patterns when we were younger. They didn't like it. And it wasn't for them. 
one of the things that like I've really enjoyed is uh, you, me, and Wyatt, and he's been on the podcast before. We all share the same house during COVID. And because we all had to spend so much time together, my psychologist mind was able to see like what both of y'all's shit was. And I was gently, sometimes not gently, trying to call it forward. And I've really seen both of you really blossom into uh, what it is y'all's true calling is. And so uh, we'll kind of run through the normal structure of the podcast until it starts to naturally spiral into interesting shit uh, to kind of give people who are listening a sense of who the fuck are they listening to and what the fuck this dude's dharma is. So the first question is, uh, let's say that you just got done doing something that puts you into flow. And I saw you afterwards and we hadn't met yet. And I asked you, who are you and what do you do? What was the thing that you were doing that put you in the flow? And what is your answer to that question? And the thing that I want to preface is don't be one of those spiritual fucking people who are like, I am nothing and everything. But like, that's not how you would fucking answer me if I saw you in person. I was like, hey man, who are you? What do you do? What would be your answer to those questions? Yeah, so what's coming up for me is being in nature and whether it was individually or with a group going through something that put me into what Joanna Macy calls deep time where whether it's like hunting or just being out on a hike or a soul wander you don't you and Casey, your girlfriend, go on more hikes than anyone I've ever met in my life, and I love it. Yeah, it's uh, a necessity at this point to clear the mind and just feel sane in an insane world at yep. this point in time. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, by the way, it is still COVID. You said in COVID times, still in COVID times. And Graham's our new roommate. <laughs> yeah, back when we thought that COVID was the Black Plague and no one would leave their house. Um, and the second question was... Who are you, you and what do you do? What do I do? So first, who are you? I'm Christian Pity. Thank you for answering that like a normal person. It's, 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 it's incredible how many people on this podcast, if I don't preface it with that, they say some shit that they would not ever actually say. <laughs> and what I do is I feel into what is being called forward in any given moment. And that can look like a myriad of different things, but oftentimes it is It's tough, man. I don't know exactly what I would say, but if I was coming off of a hike or being in nature, you know, what I do is lead people to experiential knowledge. And so where you are a teacher, what I would say is I am a bridge. 
What I imagine is that if I'm someone who didn't know you and I asked you what you do, you would say something along the lines of, I work for this dude named Aubrey Marcus and I'm basically responsible for uh, finding all the dope shit that he says and does and repackaging it for things like YouTube and things like podcasts to basically help more people find their way to the same message that honestly saved my life when I was younger. That too. You know? <laughs> and... Something that we talked about like a couple weeks ago that really resonated for me when you uh, articulated it is like a part of what my gift is, is I'm able to teach people things that are kind of hard to understand in a way that is understandable. But what you're particularly gifted at is putting people through an experience where they realize the truths that they already know, but didn't know that they knew. And like, where like I teach knowledge, you help facilitate gnosis. And gnosis is this uh, Greek word for essentially like the inner knowing. Like we had the um, deep honor to hear Charles Eisenstein speak live for the first time in like 18 months the other day. And one of the things that he was talking about is when you meet someone instantly, without any type of cognitive understanding, you have a gnosis about whether or not you trust them. And it doesn't mean that they're not trustworthy if you do trust them. And it doesn't mean that they won't ever hurt you if you do trust them, but that there's something in us instantly that just knows with a G, as Aubrey would say. And that um, a part of your gifts is putting people into experiences that allow them to do that. And it's so clearly why you're called so deeply to nature because nature seems to be like the ultimate mirror to help people have that type of gnosis. What is the first thing that you remember in your life? What's your first memory? It's kind of foggy, but I am in my childhood home, I don't know the age, but I would guess probably like maybe three or four. And I'm crawling on the ground, emulating this GI Joe toy that I had that is also crawling. Is there anyone in the memory with you or are you alone? I'm alone. What is the emotional uh, feeling attached to the memory? Was it curiosity? Was it playfulness? playfulness. Yeah. Um, what do you remember being the first like story or movie uh, that kind of captured your attention as a child? Um, this is probably not the first, but what's coming up is the never ending story. Hmm. Um, could you kind of walk us through in like a one to three minute like summary of like what the never ending story story is? Yeah, so basically there's a child who I believe is playing hooky in school and he goes up to the school attic and finds this book, this dusty book and he opens the book and gets sucked into this, his imagination that feels like a more real world than the world that he's living in that's full of adventure and 
magic and, you know, dragons or a flying dog named Falcor. And with this divine mission to save the world. What's beautiful, man, is I fucking love how accurate this question is, but because I know you as well as I do, uh, one of your clear character traits is essentially symbolic hooky. You know, it's like, whatever the fucking rule is, I'm going to find a way to like, nah, that doesn't apply to me. I'm going to go do my own thing. And I also know your deep love of like esoteric knowledge. And so that's that motherfucking book. And that the uh, drive and hunger for esoteric knowledge has called you on an adventure in life that we're going to get to. And that uh, you you dare have the audacity to be one of the humans that think not only is life meaningful, but is ultimately meaningful and that we all have a sacred task. And that what the fuck is it? about human nature where we seem to have this thing inside of us that is searching for the just right story that seems to mirror back to us what our dharma or destiny is like it's it's just fucking awesome how uh it's just awesome how smart i am and how that's such a great question and how it crushes <laughs> really and, though like living with you has changed my perspective on all stories and all myths and so i enjoy watching movies so much more now looking through your lens and there is something to it without a doubt 100%. that and I can't explain. It's absolutely one of my favorite things is to watch a movie with my friends and almost to, and to almost like, uh, toretically, like I have mythic Tourette's where I have to <laughs> scream out like what the mythical motif is and how it's a reflection of whatever it is about human nature. Um, so to build on that question, who were the, top two to three um, people that you most admired as a kid and they can be from movies and from books but also people you actually knew so like I would imagine that the main character of that movie or at least one of the characters in that movie is one of the like three and who would the other two be yeah so for the movie the character Atreyu really resonated with me. And is that the main character? Or is that the mentor to the main it's character? It's the main character in the story. Heard. So it's not the kid reading the book, Heard. but the character of the story. Um, and if I had to pick two more, Wayne Gretzky is coming to my mind. Get him. And Martin Luther King Jr. So there was a, there was another movie that I saw as a kid that I would watch over and over. And it was this cartoon story of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. Wow. I never knew that. This is also why I love doing podcasts is that you can be homies with someone for years, but if you sit down with a microphone and start asking these questions, like things come up that you never knew. What is the top most admirable trait for each of those three? So like, I would imagine, you know, just for example, um, like one might be the courage to say the truth, even if it's scary. But so not one trait that all three share, but three different traits that is the most admirable trait in each of those three. Yeah. So for Wayne Gretzky, the thing that was most admirable was that he wasn't the best at anything. He wasn't the biggest player. He wasn't the fastest player. He didn't have the hardest shot, but he was the best player. And it is in large part because of his, his IQ. Mm. 
And I remember reading when I was a kid, like a biography where he would talk about sitting in an arena hours before the game, before anybody showed up and visualizing all of the different ways that the game could play out. Wow. Um, and then, so for Atreyu, I think it is his willingness to take the hero's journey mm. and sacrifice and go into the unknown. And for Martin Luther King Jr., um, to do what's right for the good of all. So what's super dope is, again, just like there's this force inside of us that's looking for the just right story that seems to mirror back to us what our dharma is, that same force is looking for characters either living or in story or myth that reflect back to us the highest qualities that we have dormant within ourselves that almost are required to blossom in order for us to live our dharma. And the thing that I hear about Rain, about Wayne Gretzky, and we'll get more into your story where people listening can see this, but that because of a childhood illness, you didn't develop physically in the way that your genes almost were destined to have you, but that it required you to build this type of tenacity and resilience that, you know, is mirrored in Gretzky. Uh, you absolutely are on the path to motherfucking, you can't say no to your hero's journey and that that's reflected in Atreyu. And that it's almost as if there is some part of that force that has an understanding of what's coming in the world in such a way where we live in a time where, uh, you will have to do things that might not be good for your individual life, but that is for the good of all. And that, that is deeply represented by Martin Luther King. Does it shock you how much, or maybe shocks the wrong word, but what does it feel like to feel into that there was this force in you as a child that seemed to almost know your destiny and was drawing you towards the just right characters? I think that it hits a little less hard living with you <laughs> yeah, and listening to your podcast and, and being in the room with you going through this with so many people, but going through it for myself, it, it still hits and resonates on a level that is undeniable. Yeah. It blows my mind every time I do the podcast where I actually go back to these core questions because it literally lands every single time um a more interesting question and i've played with it on a handful of podcasts but it seems to be that the nature of how our psyche works it's harder to answer this question but i really do think it's great food for thought for anyone at home who's listening and maybe for you later if something doesn't come up in the moment but what villain in a movie or a myth or someone who felt like a villain in real life, what villain stands out the most as not necessarily admirable, but the one that caught your attention the most? Mm. Like as a kid, um, Scar was the one that caught my attention the most. And it's because his cunning and calculated manipulation, which is the shadow of my best gifts. And mm -hmm. this is like my intuition is that the villain that most captures us is a reflection of 
like the most potent aspect of our shadow, which is always a mirror of what our best gift is. Yeah. Um, the Godfather. And can you describe kind of what the, like, what was he like as a character um, as reflected as like a shadow? So, or, or Tony Soprano. Have you right. seen the Sopranos? Not really. So there are these characters who are doing evil things in the world. They kill people. But the way that the story is developed is like the audience has, the audience is always cheering for that person because you see the good sides of them and their intentions are to support their family and to just create the best life possible for those around them. Yeah. And there is this like sense of tribalism with both of these characters, Tony Soprano and the Godfather of like taking care of your family and your extended family at, at all the costs. expense of the world. Right. And what's interesting is again, because I know you as well as I do, I know that one of your core, like one of your highest gifts is like your unflinching loyalty but that the extreme shadow of unflinching loyalty is at the expense of the good for all. It's like, um, if it comes down to me saving my brother and potentially killing a hundred people, I will kill a hundred people. And that um, also the really beautiful thing, and we're eventually going to move to doing video for the podcast, but like there's a very specific type of smile that you just did that is a reflection of like, when something uncomfortable, but that resonates as a truth lands, there's a type of smile that people do where it's like a reflection of like, oh yeah, that's part of my shadow. That's absolutely part of my shadow. That if I'm not, if I'm not keeping Don Howard's spirit in my mind, I will absolutely kill a hundred motherfuckers <laughs> to protect my brother. <laughs> um, so to kind of like segue into that, what was your early life like? Like, let's say um, up until the age of like, up until the, so psychologically, like kind of the first core part of our life is whatever happens up until the point where we're able to start to, um, uh, where friends become a more potent force than family in our life. And that's about early teenage years. So that first part of your life, can you just tell us the story of like what it was like to be a kid for you? Yeah, so I was, I have this whole theory about our generation and my childhood was the doors wide open type of childhood where at a very early age, you know, maybe six, seven years old, like I would walk to Walgreens with my best friend who was my neighbor and we would go and get an Arizona iced tea and a chocolate muffin every day. and we would walk to school together. And then after school, we would go to somebody's house or go play in the woods. Same. And, you know, the only rule really was like, be home for dinner. Yep. And so just really explorative and really sometimes mischievous, you know, pushing the boundaries. Oh, and, hooky have an ass. Yeah. Yeah. How many brothers and sisters? I have three brothers. And you have no sisters? No sisters. Um, where are you in the order of the brothers? Second oldest. And my understanding is like all of your brothers are like six foot 
ish and you did not end up being six foot and a part of you is pissed about it, but a part of you loves it. Can you kind of tell the story of um, why you think that is? Because it feels like a central part of your like myth. Yeah. So when I was in second grade, I had mono, but our physician told me and my mom that I had the flu and to, you know, lay in a dark room with a wet towel on my head and you'll be good. What's his fucking name? Let's go find him. Right? (laughs) I don't remember. But so we did that. You know, we took his advice and a couple of weeks went by and it didn't get better. And so we went back and saw him again and he said the same thing. And then I believe we went back a third time. It could have been just two, but it was either the second or third time he like, he actually got angry at my mom and was like, you don't need to bring him in. Like, this is the flu, you know, lay in a dark room with a towel on your head. And then there was one night where my cousin, my cousins were sleeping over and we were having popsicles before bed. And I remember looking at my mom and being like, like I couldn't get the words out, but I was like, I can't breathe. And so she rushed me to the hospital. And when we got to the hospital, all of the doctors there were really pissed at my mom because they were like, your kid has an extreme case of mono. His nasal passage is 100% blocked and his airway is like 90% blocked and he could, he could have died in his sleep. And so that was, yeah, that was a whole ordeal. I was in the hospital for, I don't remember how long, a week or so. And I lost maybe 10 pounds as a tiny little kid. And it was a really long, slow recovery. And I just remember like my memories of it were just being in a hospital bed with no emotions, just complete apathy. And when I got out of the hospital, you know, I developed like these migraines. I would get migraines for a long time. I mean, even now still, it's not as bad, but like it's kind of stayed with me. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, the doctors said that that probably stunted my growth. And yeah, my brothers are all, my youngest brother's like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, uh, my other younger brother's like 6'2". And my older brother's like six foot. My dad's like six two. Um, you have to tell everyone how tall you are. Five, seven and three quarters. <laughs> yeah. Five, eight on my driver's license. Were you athletic before this happened? Yeah. And um, what was, and because I know that a part of your development is you have this thing where it's like, or you had, you had a thing when you were younger where it's like, if anyone challenges my power, I'm going to whoop their fucking ass. Did you have that before you got sick? Yeah. Okay. I actually remember walking home from school with my brother one day. And, and on the other side of the street, there was another group of kids. And, and we this were like, is before you got sick. So right. this is like first grade or first something. First grade. You're insane. And this group of kids like flicked us off. And mind you, we're like three houses or two houses away from being home. And this kid flicks us off and they're like laughing. And I just remember like running across the street and just fighting this kid. 
And my grandma ran outside and had to break us up and come get me. Was that your first time being in a fight? Yeah. Aside from fighting my brothers. Right. So after you got sick, what was like the road back to like getting back into your body and being like an athlete again? Because I know that that was a big part of your childhood. Yeah, I don't, I don't really remember like the, the road back. I think that I was so young that just naturally, it, it was just kind of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. You know, I didn't think about it. What was the first thing that you started to do as a kid that gave you a sense of power or competence? Like for me, it was video games and then it was basketball. Like what was the first thing that gave you a sense of like competence or power? Um, I think it was being able to... What people's ass? <laughs> no, just being able to... Just having the freedom. Just show up when it's dinner, you know? And so I felt like the freedom to go and explore and, you know, just explore the neighborhood and just be my own person, super young. What feels like the most um, poignant or distinguishing memory that you have before you found hockey? Because that's where we're going to move to next. And maybe it was getting sick, but maybe there's something else. It was definitely getting sick. Um, there was this memory is coming to me but I told you that we used to walk to Walgreens every day and me and my best friend would there was a house in our neighborhood and they had this donkey statue in the front of their yard and we I can called, tell by the smile you have that you did something illegal yeah so we called this lady the witch lady I don't know why but she was the witch lady. And so we would take a piece of the chocolate muffin and smear it on the donkey every time we would walk by it. And so that's sticking out. You know that you're cursed, right? Because you smeared chocolate muffin on the witch lady's donkey. <laughs> Probably why I got sick. She hexed me. So what was the moment that you found hockey? Because I know like one of the things that's really interesting to connect to is basically... Every dude that I vibe with as an adult, um, not every dude, but almost every dude, uh, they had some sport where when they were younger, they were the motherfucking king for at least some point in their life. Um, and I know that for you, it's hockey. And you won't ever admit it, but you're still so good at hockey that whenever you go to any of these fucking intramural hockey games around here, you will practice all day. And then you'll go and then you'll come home kind of sad. And I'll ask you like, did you have a bad game? And you were like, no, I scored like 12 goals. And I was like, why are you? And, he, and you're like, cause it just, it wasn't very fun. So you were a fucking killer. And I know that you won't own that, but I'm going to own it for everyone else. So uh, what was the. To be fair, this is Texas. How, first off, how dare you? <laughs> Second, I've never played hockey and I don't give a fuck. And I'm not from Texas. And third, you're good and it's okay. Um, what was that moment when you first found hockey? Yeah, so I was at my aunt and uncle's house and we were going through, I think that we were helping them. What age? I must have been like seven or eight maybe. Um, Is and that we, after second grade? I don't know the... It was after I got sick. Okay, cool. So, cool. Um, but anyways, so I'm at my aunt and uncle's house and we're going through their storage and I 
we stumbled upon all of my uncle's old trophies and photos from when he was a kid and played hockey. And so it was like on a whim. It was like, okay, like me and my brother and my cousin that day were all like, we want to play hockey. And so our parents signed us up and they paid for all of the expensive gear and started playing. When I first started playing basketball, I was fucking terrible. Uh, I didn't know how to fucking move my body and dribble a ball at the same time, but I was ridiculously tall. And I eventually, after about a year, uh, came into my body and realized that like, wow, I'm stronger than everybody and I can shoot the ball and I can, I'm actually allowed to be aggressive here. So, but it took me a year. Uh, what was your beginning with hockey like? Um, so the first day that I ever played, I stepped onto the ice with skate guards on. And because you don't know, skates have... I don't like the way you said, because I don't know, <laughs> you fuck. <laughs> so you want to protect the metal. You want to keep it sharp. So you're not supposed to walk on concrete. It's just really only made for ice. And so they have these rubber guards that you put on the skates. And when we bought them, they just attached them to the skates. And my parents didn't know what they were doing. And so I tried to go out on the ice with these rubber guards and ended up just eating shit. <laughs> And hating it for like the first hour. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So what you're telling me is one of your mythological motifs for your life is to start something with a unconscious handicap so it's harder, but then it makes you better at it. And then you realize that you were handicapping yourself and then you end up crushing at it just like you're doing on this podcast right now. Exactly. Gang, gang. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. So um, Kind of like walk me through the point in your life where uh, hockey was the main thing and then when that dream died. Because again, what I find is that in the type of group that we're in, the type of people that we attract, it seems to be true that uh, every dude that I know, he found his sport, he got obsessed with that sport, he was good at that sport. That sport was the dominant role in his life when he was a teenager and then something orchestrated the end of that uh, the end of that dream. And then that's when they kind of go through their first like existential crisis. Uh, can you kind of walk us through the period of your life where hockey was God and then the story of how the God died? Yeah, so from that first day that I stepped on the ice with skate guards on up until you know, my senior year of high school, like my whole life, hockey was my God. And, you know, I, all of my time, even on the off season, so like there's a spring season and then there's summer training camps. And so that's all I did and all I cared about. And then my senior year of high school um, was my last, you know, time on a team. And in hockey, it's a little bit different than other sports. So, what you're trying to say is hockey is better. I know we it's way better than argument. any other sport by far. <laughs> but so, unless you're really good and you're playing like AAA hockey, which is like you know your parents are spending like ten to fifteen k a year for you to be on a team as a eight year old kid, plus all of the travel, um, international travel, and all the tournaments every other weekend. Those players will go straight from their AAA teams, you know, at 16 or whatever into like some people get college deals when they're 12. 
Um, so I wasn't playing at that level, but the people who... It, is it technically illegal? Because I know in basketball, it's technically illegal to get um, a scholarship until I believe you're a junior in high school or maybe a senior. I, I could be getting that wrong, but I know that super young kids like in high school already have It's almost like deals. a verbal agreement, but not a technical, yeah. Right. I don't know like technically how that works, but um, if you want to keep playing hockey and you're not at that level, you basically play uh, juniors. And so there's like a junior B and a junior A. And then from there, you're trying to get onto a college team or like a, some type of semi-pro. Um, but it is, it's a grind. And so my idea was to play juniors. Like that would be awesome. You know, you get to go live with some family. You know, you have to get scouted and drafted to a junior team, which isn't that hard to do if you're pretty good. And then you get to go and live with a family somewhere and just play hockey full time. And they'll, they give you stipends to live and to eat. Wow. That's way different than basketball culture. Yeah. That's wild. And so like, you know, I kind of, I kind of wanted to do that, but, um, you know, my parents wanted me to go to college. I was the first person in my family to go to college Same. and to graduate. Um, but anyway, so how this ended was my senior year, I was having the best year of my life playing and I broke my arm and I was so ready to get back on the ice that me and my friend ended up cutting my own cast off with a saw like five and a half weeks into recovery. I think it was like six to nine weeks that I was supposed to be out. Um, and so I cut my cast off and I told my coach I was good to go and cleared by a doctor. And I played a couple of games and, you know, didn't have any issues, but I think it was my third game back where it wasn't a hard hit, but the way that this dude made contact with me was right on the soft spot of my still broken arm. And it just like, it shattered it. So now I have um, a metal plate and like seven screws in my arm. And so I remember that happening and I had broken a lot of bones previously and I know exactly what it feels like. And I remember being on the ice, feeling it, knowing that it was broken skating to the bench and just sitting down. And it was almost like time slowed down. Yeah. And my coaches are looking at me, my, like my teammates are looking at me and I'm just like staring, like emotionless, just staring at the bench for like, who knows how long, however many seconds pass. But then I remember just like erupting and being like, it's broken. It's fucking broken. That's it. And so then I skated off the ice when the play um, when the play stopped and I got into the locker room and then I just started breaking down and crying because I realized like that's the last game I'll ever play. Um, so that was when my God of hockey died for me. I remember when I was a junior, um, I was being scouted by Northwestern when I was a sophomore and I really believed that I would play college basketball and I, I was naive enough to think that I would play professional basketball. I remember when I tore my rotator cuff and um, I had the same feeling of like everything slowed down and like no one in the room was actually a human and that they didn't matter. And it was just like me and the void. And I was completely like 
numb emotionally until I got home. And the moment I got home, I started crying and my mom had never seen me cry before. And I was just crying and crying. And for me, uh, it took probably four years for me to actually allow that God to die. And uh, I slowly moved into a depression, but didn't have the self-awareness to realize I was depressed. I got addicted to painkillers because I eventually got surgery. And then I kept trying to train in college because like um, there were two professional European basketball players that worked out of the gym that I worked at in the off season. And one was the MVP of the European league. And like, he, 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 he truly thought that I had the like gift to be able to play over there. So I trained with them for a while, but I kept dislocating my fucking shoulder that I got surgery on. And it probably wasn't until I started doing psychedelics where I really allowed that dream to die. So I'm curious, um, what was your process? How long, what did you go through until you um, fully let that dream go? And maybe it was instant, but I'm curious yeah. what that period was like for you. So I never really thought that I had a chance to be a professional hockey player, but I liked the idea of continuing this thing that I had dedicated my life to for so long, for as long as I could. Yeah. Um, and so there was that initial shock of the realization that it was over and probably a few weeks that really sucked. And we ended up playing, <laughs> we ended up playing some of my best friends that went to Catholic school in a championship game, like four weeks after the second break. And, um, I got my coaches to allow me to dress for the game, um, because, that's where they fucked up. It's good to have an extra person on the bench because if you have like a major penalty, then somebody has to serve the penalty. So better it be somebody who can't play than one of your players. And the game ended up going into triple overtime. Wow. And I was sitting on the bench being like, everybody is tired, man. Put me in. Like I could do this. And one of my best friends growing up ended up for the other team scoring the goal and winning the game, which was awful to witness and to be there but not to be able to do anything yeah. and to to be a part of it although it was still a cool experience to like be together you know for sure but i think after the initial shock i accepted it pretty quickly and yeah. was pretty excited about like going to college and and doing that whole thing you know getting to be free from parents and rules and like be a sovereign individual even though i wasn't so let's move into that story. So uh, you were lucky enough to only have to deal with the existential crisis for a couple of weeks. Um, and then you eventually went to college. So uh, what's the story of you getting into college? What did you get a degree in? And what was college like? Yeah, so I wanted to go to San Diego State University. To do drugs with your friends? Probably. You know, like California was this like awesome idea in my head and I got accepted. Where, where did you grow up? Chicago, okay. suburbs. And um, so I was really pushing hard to go to San Diego State. Um, and I didn't really know much about finances. You know, my parents were pretty well off, but it wasn't something I really ever had to think about. So my idea was just like, I want to go to San Diego. I'm accepted. But it was like 60K a year. Um, and so I ended up, my parents wanted me to stay in state and I ended up settling, um, on Mizzou 
which is a great college. It's seven hours away from Chicago. And I ended up going there for cheaper than most in-state colleges because I got in-state tuition. Um, so I went to Mizzou and I guess this is a good time to get into, you know, what I feel is like the really distinct turning point in my life. So as a freshman, I... What was your degree? So originally I went into the business school, but I always had this, and I still do to some extent carry this like existential angst of like, what am I supposed to be doing? And so that first semester, I hated all of the business classes, and, but I loved college because it was just like drinking every day and like no rules and no parents and nobody to um, ask anything. And so it was this freedom that I was really enjoying and partying way too much. And I, you know, we would drink every day of the week. And so I had developed this issue with sleeping and I couldn't fall asleep. And then it kind of progressed into insomnia for months. And it, it would get to the point where like, I would give myself 10 hours until my alarm went off. I would lay in bed and I'd be like, I have 10 hours, like I'm going to fall asleep. And I would maybe fall asleep for two hours. And it went on for months. And finally, one night I was so fed up with not being able to sleep that like I told myself internally, like, I am not going to allow a single thought into my mind except sleep until I fall asleep. And so what happened was really interesting. As I was laying in my bed and me and my roommate built lofts so that the whole bottom floor of our dorm room could be used as like a party spot. We could drink, we could play NHL before going out and have people over. So we had this wood structure that had our beds, you know, three feet from the ceiling. And so I was laying there in bed and I was just telling myself, sleep, sleep, sleep. And I was like really committed to doing this. And what happened was eventually my, what I now know as sleep paralysis happened where my oh. body shut off, but I was still aware and my mind was still completely online. And so as my body was paralyzed, my, I started feeling electricity in my body and feeling things that I had never felt before. And I started seeing all of these like super vivid colors. And this experience was just totally captivating. And I was just sticking to the sleep, sleep, sleep. And then my whole body started to shake and I could feel it, but I couldn't control it. And I could hear the loft shaking because wow. my body was shaking. And then it started to feel like my, my, like I was detaching from my body. Yep. It started feeling like I was a balloon, very slowly rising. And it got to this like crescendo of, holy shit, like there's only a tiny thread of me left in my body. And right when it felt like I was about to separate completely, I like shot up out of bed into my body and was just floored. I had no, like no way to wrap my mind around what happened. Had you done a psychedelic up to this point? I had. 
Um, and so it was probably like three in the morning or something. I like immediately hopped out of bed, pulled open my computer and I started just Googling. And so that's when I stumbled upon lucid dreaming yep. and astral projection yep. and all of these concepts that I hadn't heard of before. And I just. Was this sophomore or junior? Freshman year. Freshman year. And so that just consumed my time, all of my free time, just looking into these concepts. and. So this is when I was in the business school and I really hated it. And I was genuinely considering dropping out. But then I went and met with my advisor and I told her that, you know, how I was feeling. And she's like, oh, we have this thing called interdisciplinary studies where you can basically build your own major and you could just take the classes so that you're interested in. So I was like, oh shit, I'll do that. So that next semester I enrolled in Hinduism and I studied Buddhism and yoga and meditation and philosophy. Zoo crushing it. Yeah, it was really great. And so that, that moment was like this really distinct alteration of my life path. Yeah. And, you know, we can get into kind of the continuation of that path. Yeah, what's interesting is um, one of the most common questions that I get uh, as like the dream guy is like, what is happening during sleep paralysis and like what's going on there? And it feels like it's worth trying to articulate for people um, just to kind of offer my sense of what my understanding is of what's going on there. And it's that when you get to a certain phase of sleep where you're nervous system feels like you're entering into dream state um one of your reflexes i forget the name of it but it paralyzes your um muscles mm -hmm. and that if you're sleep deprived or if you're purposefully trying to do almost like dream yoga and there's a whole branch of buddhism that actually is yoga nidra. on this and it's that um Your, your cognitive mind is still online, but your body is paralyzed. And one of the ways that your nervous system tries to make sense of reality is that um, it will use your physiological sensations to predict what is in the environment. And if it's dark, and if you're in a non-ordinary state of consciousness because you're sleep deprived, and the physiological feedback you're getting from your body is you're paralyzed, your brain will anticipate a reason why you are frozen in the darkness. And almost every culture has their own set of myths or stories or beliefs around like there's either like a evil witch or a dark force or some type of demonic thing that will come and sit on your chest. And lots of people have experiences of when they're having sleep paralysis of there's this like dark entity in the room and it's going to come like sit on them. And that one of my frames of the world is like a Jungian frame. And it's that uh, any type of thing that you can possibly interact with phenomenologically, which basically just means experientially, is an aspect of your psyche. It's not an external force that's outside of your psyche. And so I, there's a part of me that doesn't believe in like demons that exist outside of you, but that there are aspects like every demon, every monster, every hero, every mythic creature is alive inside of your individual psyche in some very real, interesting way. But that um, 
it's it's not something that you have to be afraid of, but it is something that if you don't train, your response to it is going to be absolute fear because your physiology is telling your brain we're frozen and there's something here trying to hurt us. And that a part of um, astral projection and a part of lucid dreaming is to be able to not be overwhelmed by fear in that state. And that if you can move through that like bridge moment, you can enter into incredible realms of consciousness where you're able to like do really interesting things. And so that just feels like it's worth offering. For sure. I have, I have a personal interest in this topic as well. And I've just kind of gathered anecdotal evidence from friends and just people in conversations about this. And it's super common for people to have what you just described, this 100%. dark entity in the room. But it doesn't always happen with sleep paralysis. No. Sometimes it's just sleep paralysis. But a, a common thread across so many people that I've talked to is this state of it almost seems like the way that they conceptualize it is that they are paralyzed because, because of the thing. Because of this thing. Yep. And I think that we probably differ a little bit in the conception of the, you know, the Jungian lens of everything being, you know, an archetype that is internal versus maybe there actually is something to there being some type of existence of these dark energies, dark forces. Either way, the felt experience is the same. Yeah. And I think that the thing that's interesting to connect to is that I've never had a personal experience where the uh, where a negative energetic force that felt like it was outside of me had the type of influence over my body that like a car would have over my body. You know, so like if a car is coming at me, I can't use my mind. I've never had an experience and I've never seen someone be able to use their mind to stop a car. But that every single time I've ever experienced a quote unquote negative force, uh, the Jungian model allows me the inner belief that I have the, I have complete sovereignty if I choose to claim it on my internal experience in such a way where I can integrate or navigate or influence or control or absorb that thing. And one of the reasons why I'm such a powerful proponent of the Jungian model is that I, I advocate for it to the degree that it uh, maintains sovereignty in the individual where they have power in that moment. Um, and I know that your position on these negative forces that, um, are external of the individual, that we both believe that you have the same functional ability to navigate those experiences, but there's lots of people I know who it feels like they almost handicap their psychological power by believing that there's negative forces that are entities outside of themselves that they, um, like cower behind like they need their crystal or they need their golden light or a protection visualization or they need to say their prayer whatever it is and that um you know i'm willing to update my model if i have an experience where the Jungian map doesn't seem like it helps me navigate but to that point just recently in the last couple of months i had my first experience where it felt like 
if I trust my intuition and my knowing, it felt like I had an experience with uh, three points of light in the sky where it felt like those points of light were very clearly and patiently and playfully conveying to me, no boy, we're not a part of your psyche. But that they felt incredibly benevolent and beautiful. And um, I'm, I'm still trying to integrate that experience because it doesn't fit into any of the models that I've ever created about what the universe is and what I am and blah, blah, blah. But it felt worth while articulating why I hold on to the Jungian lens when it comes to specifically negative forces. For sure. And I think just to state again that we both believe in the sovereignty of the individual, in the free will of the individual. In relationship to whatever these right. phenomena are. Right. Do you want to tell your story about why you have your beliefs about... Yeah. There we go. So, I guess. Well, you know what? Let's uh, kind of keep it chronological until yeah, we get to that point. We're coming so, up to it. So, you're 19. Um, you incur a wound of insomnia that actually opens you up to a gift that uh, opens you up to really changing the course of your life. How did you? How did the rest of college unfold? Yeah. So, I think that that experience was the beginning of these, the scales kind of tipping in an opposite direction. And so progressively through, that was freshman year, by the time senior year rolled around, like I was a total introvert. Like I didn't care about partying anymore. I was like reading books and listening to podcasts. And I used to pride myself on, I didn't read a book from like fifth grade to my junior year of college. You and I couldn't be more different. <laughs> right. Um, but so I had a really difficult experience with um, these dark forces, these negative energies. Was it still in college? Still in college. What, so what, it was the next year. year. Okay. Um, where basically I... Me and a me and my best friend took a strong dose of LSD and we were in the middle of Bumblefuck, like a town of 300 people um, at some cabins. And it was this beautiful, incredible, ecstatic, blissful experience for the first couple of hours. And then um, we're, we're standing out by a fire and all of a sudden it was as if this, it's hard for me to find the language, but it, it was as if the felt presence of another transposed itself onto our experience. And this was, it was initially, it was initiated by this very low vibrational frequency noise that I can't even emulate. But like, think of like the sound of a helicopter, but just way lower in frequency. 
that was so loud that you like it, it like completely took over the space. And it felt almost like an energetic web was cast onto the experience that we were having. And no, like we didn't see beings, but there was a felt presence of entities being in our experience and altering our experience. And it felt like there was some kind of an agenda. Um, and the game was the game that they were playing was submit. That's what they wanted. Give up your free will, submit. And basically at first it was almost like on autopilot, but I had a moment of realization of like, if we for a moment could connect to the two humans in the space with the fire, um, what were you and your friend either saying or doing uh, directly before the low vibrational hum started? We were joking. We were laughing ecstatically. Do you remember what the joke was? Um, I do. So there was um, a goose decoy. And we put it on top of my buddy's, he had like a, what they call a headache rack on a pickup truck. It's like this big metal welded thing on the back of a pickup truck. And we put it on top. We put this goose decoy on top and we were just laughing about it. And then. Can you remember what, and this is something that you and I have actually dug into a couple of times when we like deconstruct a joke that happened in like a group setting. And we both try to like articulate like what was it that was actually funny? And we've actually had some really interesting like disagreements and conversations around like what the actual, like why were people laughing? Mm -hmm. Can you feel into like, what was the thing that was funny? Like was what would, what was, what was funny? The fact that like this absurd thing is used to be real. Was it funny that like, like, can you feel into what, was funny. And I think that this is actually an important question to connect to, to contextualize the experience. I don't want to misremember because it's not super clear what was funny in the moment, but I think that it was just like, could you imagine if we actually left this on here for everybody to see and then like drove around like this all the time? Okay. And so it was in that moment that this noise, this frequency felt like it was just cast upon us and our experience completely changed. And all of these visions started flashing before my eyes and they were all like of the cosmos and like intergalactic travel. It was kind of the gist of what I was seeing. And you know, at first there was no, there was no fear. It was just, it, it just happened so quick that we were just so gripped by it. Was the uh, cascade of visions before or after the felt sense of submit by this external force? Uh, it was before. Okay. It was like the initial, almost like handshake or like greeting. And so then... Pretty quickly after that, um, I got the sense, like almost to, to pull myself out of that state of awe and not give in to the awe, but like claim my discernment 
over what was happening. Could you remember what was happening with your body and his body um, when the visions were happening? Like, were you standing? Were you sitting? Standing. Okay. Standing just next to the fire. And so, yeah, I, I had gotten the sense of, and, you know, what, what he said was that it was, you know, this is after the event, but it was very clear that he was no longer in the driving driver's seat of his consciousness. It felt that he had taken a back seat to his consciousness. And it felt like that's what was being, that's what was intended for me as well. Take a back seat, let us take the wheel. And so I, I had gotten a sense of that. And that's when I started to question what was happening and started to feel into, am I choosing this? And the answer was, no, I'm not choosing this. And, and so, is the this the awe that was coming no, from the No, it was the take a back seat. Okay. Move over. And so what ensued to kind of spare some of the details, but what ensued was a three-hour-long battle, internal battle, where it felt like I was fighting this external force that wanted submission. And it was like, no, no. And what was happening was... Can you feel into for a moment what the behavior your body would do if you had given into the submission? Like, if you had said yes, what would your body have done? I, I can't, I can't speculate. I don't know. I wasn't an intuitional feeling of like, would you have got in the car and driven off a cliff? No. Would you have no. started? No, there's, there's none of that. I don't okay. know. I can't speculate, but, um, so yeah, it was a three hour battle. It was an internal battle and it seemed like every strategy was being used to get me to submit. And so it felt like eventually it got to the point of like pure aggression where at first it kind of seemed like this friendly thing of like, oh, just, just take the back seat. And as I kept denying this, it started to pick up in aggression. And so it eventually got to the point where the visions in my space were like, I'm in this black void. This is what this is at like the lowest point of this experience. Is it nighttime outside and you're yeah. still by the fire? No, at this point we're in in the cabin. And like it got to the point where I was literally like, okay, I need to just lay on the couch with my head face down and just be sovereign in my own space without like just trying to get some type of respite from this bombardment of yeah. submit, submit. Can you remember what your friend was doing because he had submitted? Like, can you remember what he was like or what he, he was doing? He was basically just trying to court my attention. Just kept trying to court my attention. And it felt like to me, like wrote me into this submission as well. Can you remember any specific thing that he did? Um, one of the things that he said that really stuck out um, as it was getting to be a little bit more aggressive was like when I was in the couch with my head down, there was a comment that was made that actually 
did elicit a response from me, which was like, this is your motherly instinct. And this really weird tone of voice that like got me to perk up and be like, what? Um, and so it was things like that. And so eventually at this lowest point, I'm like getting visions of being in this like black void and feeling like I would be stuck here forever. And the felt sense of forgetting everything about my life and never seeing my family again, never seeing my friends again, saying goodbye to this life basically. And I was getting all of this, like you're literally human scum, like you're nothing. And I had this vision of like being like pathetic and not even worth having a life and, and actually probably never seeing and never coming back. Never, you know, like when you're in those spaces where like time is not time. It's forever. It's eternity. It feels like forever. And so that is actually kind of what triggered me to start thinking about my family and my friends and all of these beautiful experiences that I have had in life and the things that I wouldn't come back to, which actually elicited feelings of gratitude in me Mm. and feelings of love. I started to feel how much love I had for my friends and my family and life and these experiences. And that was the turning point of all of it. It was almost as if that was the shield. Yeah. An interesting thing to note here is two times in my life so far, I've held space for someone who was having like a psychotic break. And the instinct both times is um, after a couple of hours of just holding space to like let their nervous system feel that they're safe, that the instinct is to begin to ask them questions that will help them remember the people they love, the people they help, the people they care about, the people they show up for. And it really seems to be a tether to bring people back. Absolutely. And so as I started feeling all of this love and gratitude wash over me, like you can't be in a state of fear and a state of love at the same time. Right. And so it was almost like energetically, it was completely repelling that experience. And as soon as I felt like that was the first point of this three hour, even though time didn't exist, this battle, this internal battle that I was having, that was the first effective action is when I was embodying like feelings of love and gratitude. And there was a moment where, and at this point I like stepped outside And there was a moment that I had where I was like, I just felt like I had the vision of like a lion. And I was like, I'll fucking die right now. Like remembering all the people that I love and like having something to fight for, right? And I started embodying more gratitude and more love. And like at that point, everything started subsiding. And it was as if like that is, that was like, that was what stopped this submission game where it was like, okay, that's it. You know, there was a little bit more time, but that was the real turning point where after that, everything got easier. I had this courage and confidence in my heart and that's, that was the key. And so that brings me back to what we were just talking about, about free will. Um, in anybody having a, a tough experience, whether it's, you know, on some type of, psychedelic or otherwise, like we always have the option to control our attitude toward any, any situation. And so that is our free will and we can enact that at any point in time. Yeah. 
Something that comes to mind is um, as we're growing up, uh, the depths of our personal suffering uh, create the roots of our current psychic tree. And then the heights of our lived bliss are the top parts of the branches of our subjective tree. Mm -hmm. And that what a psychedelic can do is it can really bring you to the depth of a root or to the height of a branch that you previously have experienced emotionally at a younger part in your life. That's that Jung quote. Right. That, Plug it. Uh, the branches of the tree cannot reach towards heaven if the roots don't reach down towards hell. And that the thing that's coming up to my mind, and I've heard you tell this story a couple of times, but in the context of this entire podcast, the thing that comes to mind is, uh, do you think that the depth of the roots of I am human scum, I'm not worth anything, uh, was created when you were in the hospital? Interesting. Potentially. And yeah. that the uh, gift of the psychedelic was to like bring you back to that for the first time ever to that depth and that you got to use all the skills that you've acquired to actively bring yourself back from that depth. Yeah, I think that potentially. Because a really interesting thing that it's a cliche, but the reason that it's a cliche is because it's always true and that it's a cliche if you know the word, but you haven't felt the truth of the cliche and that if you have felt the truth of the cliche, it becomes wisdom. But it's that the way forward in the spiritual growth of the individual is to revisit the deepest roots that were carved out when you didn't have the skills to navigate when you were younger or where you just completely shut down and you're just like, I'm not ever going to feel that thing ever ever again that psychedelics and it doesn't even have to be psychedelic because a lot of people have this weird thing like oh if it was done on psychedelic it somehow doesn't count and that sounds like a great strategy for someone who's afraid to feel something that they know that they need to feel hashtag jordan peterson i see you i'm coming for you <laughs> is that um it can be done with breath work it can be done with a long stint of isolation and darkness. There are ways to do it, but it's ultimately to get into an altered state of consciousness where you can revisit those roots and that the alchemy is to feel it fully and then to move through having felt it fully. And that um, if, if that's true, if, it, if you were revisiting the roots of your tree that were carved out when you were in the hospital when you were a boy, that um, to me, it actually changes the disposition of the entity. That the entity could actually have been a servant and a teacher and a helper. That if it was truly there to, to like, there's this great idea that the greatest ally in Star Wars to Luke Skywalker is not Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's not, you right. know, R2-D2. It's motherfucking Darth Vader that the ultimate ally to Harry Potter is not Hermione, it's not Ron, it's not uh, Hagrid, it's motherfucking Darth Vader, or it's motherfucking Lord Voldemort. Yeah, I and, resonate with that. And like going back to the first thing that you said on the podcast, or one of the first things about seeing me in those spaces, I think in large part it's due to going through that experience and coming out the other end. And so with that reframe, is it an evil entity? 
it's not, but it's subjective. Right. Like but it's, it's, it's just, it's an interesting thing to feel into that. Um, there's this idea that like Aubrey's talked about a couple of times, but like he's had some visions where he's connected to the devil mm-hmm. and like, he could feel that in juxtaposition to Jesus that you could actually make the argument that the greater hero is Satan because that soul chose, I'm going to hold down this part of the game so that you can navigate choice. Yeah. So you can navigate will and that uh, might not be evil. Right. I agree with that, but I'm also like where my mind went was like Victor Frankl, right? Had he not gone through the atrocities of what he went through with the yeah. Holocaust, he wouldn't have written the book. So was the Holocaust an ally to him? And I think that you get to choose. Right. You know, and... One of the things that came up when I listened to that story is that um, it feels like that type of situation to another person might actually handicap them uh, from seizing like the most useful sword in the psychedelic experience, which is surrender. And so I'm curious, um, the next time that you had a really challenging psychedelic experience, because I, I see you now and you are a king at being able to surrender and like be with the thing. Um, was there like a handicap for a while where there was like a flinching to surrendering to the psychedelic experience? And if there was, how did you move through it? And if there wasn't, interesting. So I would love to hear how that development went. Because for anyone listening to this podcast, if you're ever curious about trying psychedelics and you haven't, or you know that you're on the path where they're allies to you and that you'll be doing it again, the ultimate key is to learn how to surrender. And so I'm curious what your journey was in healing that like flinch. Yeah. So first I just want to clarify that, you know, the way that I view that experience is with so much gratitude now because it has been one of the biggest teachers in my life and I've reaped so many lessons from it. And it, it, it was a overall positive experience in hindsight. It was the worst experience ever having gone through it, but it catalyzed a lot of growth for me. And so, so how I, how I got to the place of comfort with these types of spaces was a long, arduous road. But basically what happened after that was my friend who I went through the experience with basically just shut it out of his mind and like didn't care to revisit it. He was just like, that's fucking mind blowing. Don't know what to make of it. And I don't care to look. Let's close that forever. Whereas I couldn't do anything except try to figure out how do I articulate this experience? Like what the fuck happened? And so what that looked like for me was like just a lot of YouTube rabbit holes and books and just like seeking anything that I could find to try and wrap my head around what happened. And for a long time, like there was that imprint of fear on me where 
There were even some nights where I would wake up in the middle of the night feeling like I could hear that frequency again and just being terrified. Yeah. And because what's interesting to feel into is like sleep is a surrender. Yeah. It, it is a submit and it is almost like a micro psychedelic experience, but that's a whole side note. Right. But I also want to make it clear that I, I personally believe that submitting in that circumstance would have been the wrong move. Yeah. Um, and so how I got to that conclusion was, um, I, we're going to kind of skip around in the story a little bit, but I, so let's just go back to the college and we'll revisit that when, when it gets to it. But so after the turning point that freshman year, I started taking Hinduism, Buddhism, all of these classes and the scales were kind of tipping of like my interests and drinking was losing its pull. Social functions were losing its pull to me. I started feeling just careless about those types of things and like really becoming a seeker and wanting to know just like more about reality and about our experience and existence. And so by the time I got to senior year, I took a graduate level class that was, it was called religion, spirituality, and the brain. And it looked at the intersections of all three of those things. That's dope. And for my capstone, I wrote a paper on religious sacraments. And I decided to focus on ayahuasca. Fucking hippie. Yeah. <laughs> and do you still have that paper? I'd love to read it. Um, I could I could check. And so I as I was writing this paper, it's like the way that I went through college was to put everything off until the pressure of what to that get doesn't it done. fit your character trait at all. Yeah. And so it's like the night before this paper's due. It's like three in the morning. I got a pot of coffee, Adderall, Adderall. cigarettes, and I'm just I'm writing away. And I stumbled upon the Joe Rogan experience with Aubrey Marcus. <laughs> Me too. Yep. <laughs> And as I listened to this podcast, like I lost complete interest in the paper that I was writing. And it was as if like my soul was being spoken to. And I was just completely captivated by this What's conversation. What's interesting is just to connect to the timelines. I'm three years older than you, right? Two. Two. I found that podcast when I was going into my sophomore year of college and you found it when you were a senior. So we may have listened to it around the same time, actually. And, well, and, and it changed the course of my life too. The synchronicities are insane. That's interesting. Every time I connect to them and we'll probably get to a couple more. Um, <laughs> but so it was like, I was totally captivated by this conversation and I knew that I had to go experience this in that moment. But it was kind of like, it wasn't like immediately, but like I knew that that was something that I would have to experience in life. Yeah. And so, and shortly after that podcast, after that paper, I- So you did finish the paper. Finished the paper, crushed well, it. Well, nice. B plus. Get them. And- uh, Hashtag Christian crushing it, B plus. Hey, that's pretty good on one, <laughs> one day. 100%, you fucking maniac. And- so like the next day, I sent an email to Ty Burge, 
at the Onnit gym. Wow. And I still have this email. I want to read it. And I was like, hey, man, you got any internship opportunities? Hey, you got any ayahuasca yeah. there? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, dude, we don't have any internship opportunities. But like, and so I, I explained a little bit earlier this existential angst of like, what the fuck am I supposed to be doing? Yeah. I still felt that and I'm about to graduate college, but I found something in this podcast and in their conversation, like, okay, I don't know exactly what I want to do, but I can wholeheartedly stand behind this mission and what these people are doing. So I'm going to go for it. Like I'm going to try to get in there. And so I reached out, there was no opportunities. Fucking tie gatekeeper. And, um, I ended up, my older brother lived in Austin at that time. He had just moved there. And so I flew out and visited him and I showed up at Onnit one day <laughs> and I just like, I was just scouting, you know, I was just like trying to talk to people. I'm asking people like, how did you get a job here? You know, like just poking my head in and seeing what was up. And so I ended up going back home and I had graduated. So it was like, Okay, what am I going to do? So we just took a bathroom break and the ultimate vibe checker, Graham, just reminded me that my math that I was doing about where I thought me and Christian listened to that podcast at the same time was the opposite and that he would actually have been a junior in high school and that I was wrong. And Graham's looking at me right in the eye with a shit-eating grin, just being like, I fucking told you. So we're going to get back into this podcast. As you were saying, Christian. So yeah, as I graduated, I, I decided to, instead of looking at what everybody else was doing and trying to land a great career path, like that all seemed just devastating, like all of the options. And I looked at a lot of options of like, what kind of job can I get? And everything just seemed soul crushing. And so I was like, okay, I want, instead of chasing this great career path, like I need to have certain experiences. So that's what I'm going for. So I moved back home with my parents and I worked for my dad. He owns a landscaping company. And I, I ended up selling my prized possession, my car. And I always wanted to travel abroad in college, but I didn't want to accrue more debt and I also didn't really want to like go do school there. I just wanted to go travel. So that's what I did. I sold my car, saved my money, saved up 10K, and I bought a one-way ticket to Italy. Get him. He's and Italian, by the way, folks, and uh, he never lets us forget. He makes pasta four times a week. At least. And so I, I went. I went to Italy and... Honestly, was having the absolute best time of my life. It's just me. It's just my backpack. There's no agenda. It's every day is whatever I feel like doing. Meeting wow. cool people. Let's go check out these cathedrals. Let's. How go. dare you? How dare you? Fucking <laughs> look at me, being like I've seen cathedrals and you haven't. I've I felt it. We'll go one day. Yes. And so yeah, I traveled from the north of Italy all the way to Sicily, where I had family that. I had never really met. I met them when I was a small child when they came to Chicago. But um, 
I was going to go and stay with them. And so I did. And I was there for like a week and I had already booked my flight from Sicily to Venice. And then from Venice, I was going to go to Croatia and then my wake, make my way around Europe and just see as much as I could until my $10,000 ran out. So this is like a month into the trip and I get sick. I get like a fever and I'm in my cousin's bed all day and they knew that I was leaving in a couple of days and they saw that I was really sick. And so my cousin was like, no, like we're going to go get you checked out. Let's go to the doctor at least so we know you're good before you continue this, this journey. So we went to this Sicilian doctor in some like old apartment building and he wanted to run some tests on me. I had to go and get a, a scan. And when the results came back, he looked at me in the eyes and he was like, you're not going anywhere for the next 10 days. You are bedridden. Here are three prescriptions and here's a shot that you need to stick into your ass every day. You have a severe pneumonia and you should not be doing anything. And at this point, my cousin called my parents. My parents were freaking the fuck out. And they're like, you're coming home tomorrow. Like, you know, we don't trust Sicilian doctors and the medical system there. We don't know anything about it. So like, we want you home. So I spent almost two grand on like the next available flight from Sicily to Chicago. And the next day I left and I spent... I think it was like 22 hours traveling with the layovers, deathly ill, like so, like as sick as I've ever been, barely maintaining a clear enough face for them not to kick me off of the plane because I was too sick. And so finally I land in Chicago, so probably like eight o'clock at night. My parents pick me up from the airport and I'm just like, let's go home. I just need to sleep. And we'll go to the hospital tomorrow. Like, let me just go sleep. And so we get home. I go upstairs. I lay in bed. And as soon as I laid down, um, this thing called pleurisy started happening. And what pleurisy is, is when your, um, your, ch your chest cavity is so inflamed and your lining is so inflamed that any amount of movement feels like there's a dagger in your side. It's legitimately the worst pain I've ever been in. Not only could I not move, any slight movement would feel like a dagger. Breathing. I couldn't take a big breath in. I couldn't take it a strong exhale. I was, I was literally paralyzed by this pain. And so we had to call an ambulance and I got taken to the hospital where I spent the next 12 or 13 days in the hospital. Damn. And from the moment I got into that hospital, they put me on Dilaudid, which is X amount stronger than heroin. It's a very, very strong opiate. And so every three hours around the clock, I would get a Dilaudid injection. And, and so I was really sick. I ended up losing 28 pounds. I had a fever of over 105 degrees. And... And I was on, I was addicted to opiates. I was basically a zombie. So I went from the absolute best time of my life to rock bottom, genuinely feeling like I might die. 
And I, it took them about nine days until they tried every antibiotic. Nothing was working. They tried an antifungal because they're like, the antibiotics aren't working. Let's try this. Nothing was working. So on day nine, they ended up going down my throat with whatever medical tools they had. And they extracted what resembled a fishbone. We never got the lab analysis on, on actually confirming that that was what it was, but it looked like a fishbone. They pulled it out of my right lung, which is the source of the infection. And um, they ended up going through my back with a needle and pulling out more than a Coke can worth of liquid between my chest cavity. So I was floored. Like I was rock bottom. Best time of my life. So there was a physical object in your lung that was not produced by your body that had caused a cut that had caused an infection? Correct. And the weirdest thing about this whole thing is that how does that object get there? Well, the only way it gets there is if you aspirate something. But when you aspirate something, you know it. You feel it. It is very painful. You know, you don't like when you inhale something, like there's no mistake, like you know that that happened. Wow. And so the doctor who had been doing this, this pulmonologist for like 30 plus years was like, I've never seen some shit like this. And so it was crazy. It was a crazy experience to say the least. And in the hospital is when there was a very distinct moment somewhere in this heroin-like days where I just knew that I had to do ayahuasca. Like, this is the time. Like, if I get out of this hospital, I have to go and do this. And this was also when I really stumbled upon stoicism. And I really started integrating that philosophy into my life, where everything's just an opportunity. And so from there, I got out of the hospital probably a couple of days too early. I was still really fucked up. And they, that doesn't sound like you. <laughs> and they gave me um, whatever over-the-counter, the strongest painkiller that you could get. And I took, I took the dose as I was leaving. And then when I got home is when the withdrawal symptoms started extremely heavily. I gained 40 pounds after I started going through withdrawals because I didn't, I didn't even understand I was going through withdrawals. And so I just started eating and eating yeah. and eating. And this was after your injury as well, right? Yeah. And 220 fat boy, Eric had titties. Yeah. That's how your dream had to die. With titties. <laughs> so what was your withdrawal period like? Man, I was just... I was just a maniac. Like I remember getting home and I can't even describe the feelings that I was feeling, but just like the word, just there's no words for it. Like the worst feelings ever. And I remember like when we got home, like I was like enough. Like I had come to and realized what had happened to me at this point being out of the hospital. Cause before that it was like a time warp. After the first couple of days, man, I would look at the clock minutes after I get my Dilaudid injection and that initial warm hug feeling subsides and I'm counting down until the next injection. And so when I got home, I threw a tantrum. I took the pills that they had given me, these painkillers, and I threw them against the wall. And I looked at my parents and I was like, 
I don't care what your position is on this, but I need weed. Like I'm done. I'm done taking any fucking pills. I'm done taking prescriptions. I'm done with all of this shit. Just give me weed. And, you know, we had a little bit of a struggle at first, but the very next day, my dad had brought me edibles that he had gotten from his friend, which was like mind blowing to me. Yeah. And so basically my recovery was, um, just edibles. And so that's when I, it was the fall and it was hunting season. And I decided I'm going to start bow hunting and that's the best way to recover. You know, I'm going to just leave this house. I'm going to go out into the woods as much as I can. I mean, there were, I was there for two weeks at one point, but every other weekend I would just go most of the time with my brother and just spend all my time in a fucking tree, probably 200 hours just sitting in a tree. And I wasn't successful for the deer hunts, but it was some of the you most were successful. Oh yeah. It was some of the most healing, just great, beautiful times in my solitude to be in a tree alone with nothing other than my thoughts. Bruh, I've, I've heard you tell pieces of your life story many times throughout my years of knowing you and hearing it in the context of this podcast, it's so clear. One of the things that I see in people's lives is uh, whatever w- was the solution to their deepest hell moment is very likely their medicine to share with others for the rest of their life. Your medicine mm. that you intuitively gravitated towards after your worst moment of your life was to go out into nature. Big facts. Yeah, and it's... Not something that I can really hide from anymore. What I would offer is cut out the word really. Yeah. It is not something that I can hide from anymore. And maybe even cut out the word can. It is not something that I hide from anymore. So when you come back from your Bill Plotkin adventure, uh, we're going to do a part two. Let's do it. Christian, you were nervous. You fucking crushed it. There will be a part two. Thank you so much for coming on. I think that that's a really great cliffhanger to leave people on because there is a part two. And it really feels like in the next couple of weeks, you're about to go on the biggest adventure of your life. And when you come back, I would love to do a part two as a part of your integration. And we'll pick up the story from after you began healing, being in nature. But this feels like the right place to put a pin in it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on and for being honestly the best friend I've ever had and brother and therapist (laughs) and dream interpreter and somebody that is going to call me out on my bullshit. And I love you. I love you too, man. And thank you for being the person in my life that has taught me that uh, I can trust men because truly like, and Graham can attest to this. If he and I are in a bind, and we need someone to help. You're the first motherfucker that we think of. And so thank you for doing the work to be that type of person. Love you guys. <laughs>